Well, good morning. It's the second Sunday of Advent, and so glad that you've joined us again today. Um, wanted to invite you personally to come join us, 611 King Street West in Oshawa, if you're local, for our two candlelight Christmas Eve worship gatherings, uh, one at 4 p.m. and one at 5.30 p.m. We would love to have you join us. And uh, there's nothing quite like a Christmas Eve candlelight worship service. So we'd love to have you come join us again on Christmas Eve, 4 p.m. and 5.30 p.m. Also, thank you so much for your generous giving. We are 20% of the way toward our $10,000 um, goal for Christmas at King. Every penny goes to uh, local outreach initiatives and faraway places that help meet real needs for real people. And you can learn more about that at kingstreet.org. You can designate your funds Christmas at King over and above your tithe, and it will help us do more together than we could ever do on our own. So uh, thank you as well for giving faithfully to the chapel project. We are over 25% of the way there. Our $200,000 project, we are now over $50,000 given. So thank you again. We're looking forward to uh, starting that project in the new year and stay tuned for, for more information. We had a wonderful serve night on Wednesday of this past week where dozens and dozens of people from King Street came to um, use their hands and do some really tangible things to help other people as part of our Christmas at King initiative. And the ladies had a fantastic event, uh, the ladies marketplace event on Friday night. Over 200 women were registered for that event, which is really, really cool. So today we're continuing our series, our Advent series uh, called A Stranger Christmas. And today we're going to talk a little bit about evil and darkness. And it sounds really, really heavy. Uh, but we're going to kind of cast some light, so to speak, on the, uh, the darkness that was um, around the edges, we could say, of the first Advent um, story or Advent narrative. Uh, the first coming of our Lord Jesus. If you happen to be new to church, new to faith, uh, Advent simply means coming. And so over 2.2 billion Christians around the world are celebrating the first coming of the Lord Jesus with an eye on his soon return. And uh, so this stranger Christmas, we're taking a little bit of a different perspective during this, uh, this Advent season where we're looking at the Christmas narrative, but from a different perspective. Last week, if you were with us, we took a look at the angelic messengers and we're taking a look at the unseen dimension of reality and the impact that that dimension has on the seen dimension of reality. So the unseen impacts the seen. And uh, so this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, evil and darkness and how that was also um, a part of the Christmas narrative. In fact, our passage to ponder includes this verse, the light that shines the dark, the light that shines in the darkness, John wrote and the darkness has not overcome it. The light uh, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's part of our passage to ponder. So we'll take a look at our whole passage to ponder now from John's Gospel. Chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5 and verse 14 goes like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this right at the very beginning, John's gospel chapter one says um, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It doesn't mean that the darkness didn't try. 
but the darkness has not overcome the light. I like Isaiah, the prophet, in chapter 9 in the Older Testament. He writes these words, and it's prophetically speaking about the time when Messiah would come. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in deep darkness, a light has dawned. A beautiful, beautiful prophetic announcement about what it would be like in the time of the coming Messiah, the first coming of the Messiah. So I've got four thoughts for you today, and uh, the first one goes like this. Evil and darkness is alive and well today. So it wasn't just uh, part of the first advent, the incarnation story. Uh, it's a part of our reality today, and I know that you know that. A quick survey of, of your um, you know, uh, notifications on your news app, if you have one on your phone, will tell you really, really quickly, probably on a daily basis, that evil and darkness are alive and well today. Um, these words were found in a BBC article just this past week. It's a quote from an individual named Andre Bing. It goes like this, Sorry, everyone, but I did not plan this. I promise things just fell in place like I was led by the Satan, he says. And these are the words of the, the man who was a supervisor in a Walmart store who went in and shot six of his coworkers in Virginia in the United States. It was like he was led by the Satan is how he describes it. A very, very sad story to read about how a man woke up and he posted this, then he went in and literally executed his coworkers. And uh, a really tangible, awful, horrific story about how evil and darkness are alive and well today. Um, Peter Kreeft, one of my favorite writers, says, We do not know much about demons from Revelation or from Scripture. The horns and the hoofs, the tights and the tails, the grotesque faces and the fantastic tails come from another merely human source, he says. Even scriptural imagery to describe evil and darkness is only imagery. The devil is said to be like a roaring lion, roaming about seeking someone to devour. So even the biblical writer says this is what the Satan is like, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know, if it wasn't in the Walmart in Virginia, it's Putin's war in the Ukraine, where they're just dismantling all the infrastructure, specifically the energy infrastructure, where running water or even electricity and heating homes is now like a... Um, precious, rare commodity. And I don't understand how somebody can give the, um, give the, 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 the warning or give the order to go and dismantle a country's infrastructure and know that he's leaving children and women and men in the dark and in the cold as winter approaches, and then go to sleep in your own warm bed and turn on your, your warm running water and have your hot shower, knowing that other people, just your neighbors on the other side of the border are suffering, and it's because you gave the order. And so I don't understand how that happens. It's beyond me. But to be honest with you, it's not really beyond me because that same evil and darkness is also prevalent in every one of our human hearts. So it's beyond us, but not really, because unfortunately, it's also within us. Evil and darkness is out there, but it's also in here. Um, scripture says, James chapter 1, verse 13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt anyone, but each person, this is really, really important, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and they are enticed. 
And so there's this idea that we have evil desires that take us in the wrong direction, or at least prompt us to go there. And so evil is alive and well in our world today. So let's take a look, our present day reality, let's take a look at the first coming of the Lord Jesus. Evil in darkness was part of the first Advent narrative. So the light of the world had come and darkness had not overcome it. And as I already mentioned, it wasn't that it didn't try. Uh, it did try, but it didn't overcome uh, the light. Evil and darkness can be overt, as we just talked about, from the Walmart in Virginia to Putin's war in the Ukraine. It can be overt, and it can also be um, covert, um, like Herod's dealings with the Magi in the first advent. The text says this in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. When Herod called the Magi, this was a group of people from the east, who followed the star, the heavenly bodies that led them to the first coming of the Messiah, Jesus. When they heard, well, sorry, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Herod had no intention of worshiping him. And so we uh, do well to not always take on the surface of things that which is said but to use discernment to understand exactly what's really said behind the message of what's being said. He says, so that I may go and worship him, but he was not uh, intending to do so. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And in verse 16, it says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So Herod had um, an intent not to come and worship the Christ child, but to actually deal with the threat to his own throne and to the power that he had possessed by executing that which was a threat to his own power. So Pharaoh and Herod, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh and Herod are cut from the very same cloth. Evil and darkness, always remember this, evil and darkness always hate covenant agreement with God. And they hate the people of God. And they also hate children. Um, and unfortunately, these days, we're seeing a resurgence of anti-Semitism, where there has been an intense hatred for the Jewish people. And uh, there's, there's definitely spiritual origins in this hatred uh, for, for the Jewish people. Um, listen to back in Egypt, back in the Exodus, chapter 1, the beginning part of this wonderful story of God's deliverance for the Hebrew people. Uh, in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 1, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. They were a threat to Pharaoh, just like the Messiah was a threat to Herod. Now Pharaoh says, Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave this country because the Hebrew people were a wonderful commodity that they were using to build the infrastructure of their country. Then Pharaoh gave this order, 
to all of his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And so Pharaoh and Herod are cut from the very same cloth. Um, There is a uh, desire, an insatiable desire to oppose and literally hate anything that resembles covenant with God. That's why marriages are in the crosshairs of evil and darkness, because there is covenant established between a man and a woman and God as they step into a marriage union. It's incredibly sacred. Um, Evil and darkness hate the people of God because they are loved and in fellowship and in relationship with the one true God. And it seems to be that evil and darkness hate children. And so we see this show up in both the Older and the New Testament. The kingdom of darkness is known for a few things. And we see it in Herod and we see it in Pharaoh. Abuse of power, which is about self-centeredness. Pride and arrogance. This is what the kingdom of darkness is known for. Abuse of power, pride and arrogance, and mistreatment of people. The sanctity of life. There is no sanctity of life for evil and darkness. And so uh, whether it be the mistreatment of people in this world or the abortion movement or, or whether it just be the mishandling of children, this is something that evil and darkness um, delight in and it opposes the kingdom of God. Jesus had very strong words for people who would mistreat children, who would abuse power, And uh, he actually had strong words for people who were proud and arrogant, which were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Listen to what he says. This is really, really strong language from Jesus. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 44, he says, You belong to your father, the devil. Could Could you imagine saying that to a group of religious leaders in Jesus' day? He says, You belong to your father, the devil. Because they had asserted that they were Abraham's children, that they were part of the elect of God, that they were under the favor of God. And he says, you know what? You're actually not demonstrating that you are children of Abraham. You're actually demonstrating that you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so in the first uh, Christmas or Advent narrative, we see that evil and darkness are present there too, looking to remove the promised Christ child, the Messiah who would come to liberate God's people and, uh, and to provide atonement for the whole human family. And, and there was a murderous threat. And then Jesus actually says to, um, to the religious people of his day, you're like your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. And we see even in the opening pages of scripture, Cain and Abel, uh, there is this violent act after sin enters the world and is embraced by the human family. Uh, violence occurs in chapter four. In chapter three, sin is, is, is uh, initiated by the, the first humans by living independent of God and then violence erupts in the very next chapter. And so right from the beginning, we see this narrative of evil and darkness and violence and abuse of power and, and threat to covenant. And, and even misuse and mishandling of, of children all the way through. All right, I've got two more thoughts for you as we consider uh, evil and darkness, taking a, a look at a stranger Christmas, a different kind of angle. Evil and darkness is antichrist. Evil and darkness is antichrist. It resists everything that Christ, who is the promise, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, uh, evil and darkness opposes everything that Christ promotes. 
and uh, pre-Eden reality, before the garden, we don't know a lot about evil and darkness, but it just kind of shows up, kind of personified in a talking serpent. Uh, we don't know a lot. We have a little bit of a glimpse into it, uh, but we pick up the story where all of a sudden the serpent, who seems to be trying to undermine God's work in the world and his relationship with, with the first man and the first woman. Uh, and we pick up the story here in, in chapter three, where this talking serpent says these words. He says, um, so the Lord said to the serpent, or after the serpent had already deceived and, and caused the first man, the first woman to fail and to fall, uh, the Lord speaks to the serpent and demonstrates to us that there is a conflict between the serpent, the darkness and evil in the world, um, with the first humans and with all humans who will follow. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you have tricked and deceived and caused the first man and woman to turn their hearts away from God. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Who is the woman here? This is a prophetic announcement about Mary who would carry the Christ child. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And all of a sudden, this male personal pronoun shows up. Masculine personal pronoun. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It is a picture of this conflict between evil and darkness and the Messiah, the Christ, who would come. And he would deal a death blow, Christ himself, to the serpent's head. But there would be pain inflicted upon the Messiah. He will inflict pain or strike at the Messiah's heel. Now, um, not a, a popular book, not frequently read because there's mystery around it. And it's a uh, a challenging book for, for people to understand. It's very symbolic, very, um, very much first century language that's used and easily misunderstood. But the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 12, let me read this and think about Mary and her son Jesus and all that happened as we've already read the story of Herod wanting to, to destroy uh, any threat to his throne, which was to uh, kill the Christ child. Um, in verse 1 of chapter 12, the book of Revelation goes like this. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun. Remember, very symbolic language. With the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. It's a picture of this conflict that's going on, and specifically the woman and her son. The dragon or the Satan or the serpent wants to destroy the woman and her child. But God protects and God provides. And as we know the story of the first advent, God warned through his angels in a dream to Joseph to take the Christ child and Mary off to Egypt for a couple of years until the threat had passed. 
And so uh, it's a story of evil and darkness that is anti-Christ, resists and oppose everything that Jesus promotes. All right, so we're going to get really practical now because we've been talking about a stranger Christmas, going back to the Advent story, and then connecting the dots for us here around how darkness and evil, there's mystery around its work in the world, but there is such a thing that resists all the good work of God, the covenant people of God. And, um, and so let's go now, really practical. Number four, evil and darkness have strategies that we need to be aware of in this world if we're going to live with wisdom and if we're going to navigate our way and stay away from all the ditches in life that they kind of set up for us. Um, evil and darkness have strategies. We fall into the devil's trap when we make more of him or too little of him. Again, back to Peter Kreeft, I like this. He says, Satan is equally pleased by our overestimating him, living in fear and intimidation, by overestimating him and our underestimating him. As the commander of an enemy army in wartime would be equally pleased if your side greatly overestimated his strengths and shook with superstitious fear when there was nothing to fear but fear itself. Or if you greatly underestimated his strength or even stopped believing in his very existence. So this is not an idea uh, from antiquity that was made up and it's from an ancient world that doesn't exist. It's not fairy tale language. Some of the descriptions around it with horns and tails and red tight suits and all of that kind of stuff, that's from a certain time in the Middle Ages where they described evil and demons and Satan that way. But the Bible describes evil and Satan and his cohorts as being spirit beings that influence from the unseen dimension of reality into the seen dimension of reality. Satan and his demonic cohorts are created beings with limited power. They are not equal with God. God is all-powerful. Satan and his evil demonic cohorts are not all-powerful. But here are his tactics. These tactics include, I'll be really quick, intimidation. The serpent in the garden used um, attempts to intimidate with his knowledge. Uh, listen to what he says to the first woman. Uh, you will not certainly die, in verse 4 of chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent comes to intimidate the woman with its knowledge, saying, Oh, you heard one thing, but I'm going to give you more insight over here. This is what God said, but this is actually why he said it. He's trying to keep you from something. You will not surely die. So he calls into question, almost like an intellectual superiority, and perhaps even a bit of condescension, perhaps a bit of curiosity, provoking something in the woman, uh, using some sort of intellectual uh, intimidation tactic. You know, that's very true today. Sometimes we hear what God has said or we read what God has said. And then we have 18 different perspectives and theories around what it might be to try to unpack the potency around what God has already said. And God has said something very clearly to us. But intellectual intimidation can also be a tactic that the enemy can use to move us away from the good, trusted, noble, narrow way of God. Uh, another tactic is condemnation and accusation. Um, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, the next verse after what we just read. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, that's who Satan is, the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. This is one of the tactics and the functions of evil and darkness. 
is to accuse us. There are some people who are riddled with guilt and shame, and I would call it false guilt and real shame that actually impacts their view of themselves and their usefulness in the kingdom of God because they simply cannot pardon themselves for their transgressions and they feel that they're not good enough to qualify to be loved by God and to be useful in his kingdom. And the enemy loves to do that, to accuse us and to condemn us. Another tactic, pretty obvious one, Jesus experienced it in Matthew's gospel chapter four. Uh, and in James chapter one, we already referenced it. It's temptation and seduction. The first man, and the first woman were tempted with taking something that God said was offside. Um, a dependency on him was called into question because maybe God was perhaps holding out on them. This was the serpent's tactic. Temptation always um, overpromises and underdelivers. Temptation always says God's way is not trustworthy and true. You know a better way. And why don't you choose the better way? Because God doesn't know what's best for you. And then two more, indoctrination. This is a tactic of the evil one as well. The spirit clearly says, in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. And so there's actually ideas or ideologies or doctrines, according to Paul, when he writes to Timothy, that are inspired by darkness and by evil and by demons. And that's a tough thing to get our head around today, but it was a warning in the first century. It's a warning today in our 21st century that not every teaching is God-sanctioned or God-approved. And so we need to be anchored in the truth. We need to be immersed in the good book of Scripture, responsibly interpreted with the community of faith, and remember that there is an agenda from darkness to take us away from the truth. And then finally, the last one is, and this creates some fear for some, control, which can be oppression or possession. I wanna to speak to everyone who's a Jesus follower today. If you have decided to follow Jesus, if you have renounced your life dominated by sin and evil, and you've chosen to follow Christ, imperfectly of course, but you have set him aside as Lord, as King, and uh, you are leaning into what it means to give him more and more access to your heart and to follow his leadership with your life. You don't need to be afraid or worried. Possession is something that someone deliberately opens themselves up to. Jesus uh, taught about it. Jesus engaged it in the, the gospel accounts. Uh, but this is when people open themselves up to evil and deliberately say no to the ways of God and flirt with darkness. Um, people can play with all sorts of occultic practices, Ouija boards, all sorts of things that open themselves up to the spirit dimension that is not wise and not helpful and not healthy. And so um, in our world, if we are Jesus following people, we are sealed with the spirit and don't need to be afraid of being taken over by evil, so to speak. But it doesn't mean that we're not going to be tempted or seduced or perhaps even oppressed on occasion where there are things that are not um, in us, but things that might want to um, bother us, so to speak, or intimidate us and maybe try to attach themselves to us in some way. Um, when we walk uprightly before God, when we um, make a commitment to holy housekeeping and we sweep out those things that are in us that um, are, are temptations to corrupt our souls, when we keep close walk with God and uh, we, we, we cleanse ourselves in the word of the Lord on a regular basis, we don't have anything to be worried about or afraid of. So um, again, a stranger Christmas, evil and darkness. Uh, Herod had an agenda and evil still has an agenda for us. 
And so I want to encourage you today during this Christmas season to walk uprightly with God, to walk in the light, and to say no to darkness, and to have a wonderful Christmas season. So anyway, I want to invite our host pastors to come back at this time, and may you know the joy and the peace of Christ, and may the light of the gospel light you up in every way as you commit yourself to doing His will.